This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, January 12th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Virginia Allen. Twitter and Facebook have banned President Trump from their platforms, and Google, Apple, and Amazon have suppressed the social media platform Parler. Klon Kitchen, the director for the Center for Technology Policy at the Heritage Foundation, joins the podcast to explain what you need to know about the actions of these big tech companies. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. Democrats have filed an article of impeachment against President Donald Trump, citing Wednesday's unrest at the Capitol. Authored by Democrats David Cicilline of Rhode Island, Ted Lieu of California, and Jamie Raskin of Maryland. The article says that Trump was willfully inciting violence against the government of the United States and adds that President Trump gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. He threatened the integrity of the democratic system, interfered with a peaceful transfer of power, and imperiled a colloquial branch of government. He thereby betrayed his trust as president to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Democrats issued a resolution on the House floor Monday calling for Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove the president from office. Republicans blocked the immediate consideration of the resolution with one objection from Representative Alex Mooney, Republican of West Virginia. House rules allow one objection to delay consideration of such a resolution. In a statement Monday, Mooney said, Speaker Pelosi should not attempt to adopt a resolution of this magnitude without any debate on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. And he added, the U.S. House must never adopt a resolution that demands the removal of a duly elected president without any hearings, debate, or recorded votes. The full House is expected to vote on the resolution Tuesday, which will likely be voted down by many Republicans. Democrat Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island is asking that his Republican Senate colleagues, Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz of Texas, be removed from the Senate following their attempts to object to the certification of the 2020 presidential election, which Congress certified on Wednesday. In a Sunday tweet, Whitehouse said, The Senate Ethics Committee also must consider the expulsion or censure and punishment of Senators Cruz, Hawley, and perhaps others, to conduct security review of what happened and what went wrong. White House added, because Congress has protections from the Department of Justice under separation of powers, specifically the speech and debate clause, significant investigation will need to be done in the Senate. Because of massive potential conflict of interest, Senators Cruz, Hawley, and Johnson at least need to be off all relevant committees reviewing this matter until the investigation of their role is complete. The social media platform Parler has sued Amazon after the tech giant suspended them. Amazon suspended Parler from their cloud service on Sunday night, citing concerns over user posts which encourage violence. Amazon's actions come shortly after both Google and Apple removed the Parler app from their app store this weekend, following the events that transpired at the Capitol Wednesday. The large tech companies say Parler users were using the platform as a place to plan and coordinate more violent attacks. 
Parler's lawsuit argues that Amazon's suspension is in violation of antitrust law and that Amazon has violated their contract with them. Parler is asking the U.S. District Court in Seattle to order Amazon to reinstate the platform immediately. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Klon Kitchen, director for the Center for Technology Policy at the Heritage Foundation, as we discuss why Twitter and Facebook ban the president from their platforms and what action should be taken moving forward. This is Virginia Allen, host of the Daily Signal podcast. I don't know about you, but YouTube is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, Go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues you care about most. You can also search for the channel by going to youtube.com slash daily signal. I am joined by Klon Kitchen, the director for the Center for Technology Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Klon, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So big tech companies and free speech is definitely on everyone's mind this week after rioters forcefully entered the Capitol and caused a full lockdown of the building last Wednesday. Twitter suspended President Donald Trump's Twitter account first for just 12 hours, but then shortly after they reinstated his account, Twitter banned President Trump from the platform permanently. Could you just walk us through the reasoning for why Twitter said that they decided to permanently ban the president from their site? Sure. And as I do, um, you know, a, a, a bit of context here. Conservatives have have been concerned about the way the tech industry has been handling itself and conservative speech online for a long time. Um, and these companies have utterly failed to win and to hold public trust. And, you know, that reality is really making an already difficult situation right now even worse because of things like this, where, uh, you know, this type of action was taken. I'll walk through a little bit of the rationale behind it. But frankly, the intentions uh, of, of these companies just aren't broadly trusted. And so regardless of the of the relative merits of, of the individual case or not, um, a lot of people are just un- unhappy and, and we're all trying to navigate that. So that's just context. And I, I just kind of want to recognize that reality. Um, in terms of what happened with the with Twitter's permanent ban of, of, of President Trump, as you said, um, following the events last week uh, at the U.S. Capitol, uh, he was put on a 12-hour suspension. At the point where he came back up, uh, at the end of that suspension, he... Um, he posted two tweets. The first tweet said this, quote, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form, end quote. He then followed it up with a second tweet that said this, quote, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th, end quote. Now, Twitter initially determined that these tweets did not in and of themselves violate their community standards, and so they were left up. 
And one could read through those and see like, well, I mean, like you may agree or disagree with kind of whatever it is the president said. They don't seem particularly kind of provocative. But Twitter also decided that what they were going to do was they were going to kind of watch the online conversation around these tweets. And as they did that, they began to observe a growing number of users that were citing or interpreting the president's tweets, those two particularly, as calling for or justifying additional violent political rallies or actions, and that even specific and deliberate planning, including dates and locations, was starting to evolve and be discussed and organized on Twitter and on other social media platforms. And that's actually, if you take a look at uh, Twitter's uh, announcement of the ban, they actually kind of uh, uh, obliquely referenced that rationale in the very first paragraph, where they talk about how these tweets are being interpreted and used. So this led Twitter to ultimately close the president's account and to begin working with federal law enforcement and to leverage existing counterterrorism partnerships with other tech companies to begin sharing threat information as this kind of this challenge um, kind of grew. Now, one final point. I think it's fair to say that while what I just described is the immediate context for this decision, I think it also is true that this decision is the culmination of four years of sparring between the the, the president and and Twitter, and you know the the most recent thing may have just been the the straw that broke the camel's back, but you know what we're seeing now, even in news reporting that's coming out today, is that um, these threat streams that seem to have motivated Twitter are now coming into public view, and the FBI is is now actively warning against some of this. So, Claude, I mean, of course, there are instances where individuals should be removed, should be blocked. We obviously don't want to see people calling for violence using these platforms to provoke violence. But following that logic that essentially, you know, Twitter looked at those two initial tweets, they saw that the tweets themselves didn't violate their standards, then to remove the president because of conversations happening off of those initial tweets, it seems to me that it would make more sense just to focus on removing those individuals who are the ones that are spurring on the violence instead of removing the leader of the free world from Twitter. Yeah, I think that's a fair critique. Um, I think one of the challenges is, well, one, they they absolutely did pivot and start focusing on the people who were actually doing the planning, right? That, that was clearly happening. Um, I think, too, uh, one of the things that we have to recognize is it's broadly believed that there were things that the president has said over the course of time and specifically most recently that um, that actively instigated some of the activities that we observed last week. I mean, one of the president's most um, ardent supporters, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, on Wednesday night came to the Senate floor and said exactly that, uh, as did Liz Cheney, as did Tom Cotton, as did a whole host of other people. So when when Twitter gives the justification that, hey, we're concerned that leaving these tweets up, meaning the president's tweet, could inspire or lead to additional violent action, whether we agree with them or not, they certainly weren't the only ones who were making similar judgments. And it wasn't only left or liberal commentators making that judgment. It was also, frankly, those on the political right, even in the U.S. Senate. 
So we have seen uh, that a lot of conservative users are saying that many of their followers have all of a sudden disappeared. Do we know kind of the situation there? What's happening with mass amounts of, of people? It seems to be being taken off the site. And then who is making those decisions for who gets to stay and who's taken down? Yep. So almost near simultaneously to the action against the president, we began observing the loss of thousands of conservative, uh, I'm putting that in air quotes because it's just impossible to know, but conservative followers on Twitter, particularly those who followed um, conservative influencers. And what we have discovered and, and what's what's occurring is that as Twitter and other social media organizations began investigating this threat stream about online um, kind of anti-government planning, they realized that a key part of what was kind of fomenting that and also kind of spreading it were these uh, users and networks associated with the QAnon conspiracy. And so it was decided to increase the scrutiny on those accounts of the QAnon accounts in an effort to, one, mitigate their ability to kind of coordinate and plan, and then, two, also mitigate the, the kind of spread of, um, of their content. And what that mitigation effort largely consisted of was any uh, account that, that showed activity that looked like it was either spam or bots, these are you know, automated fake accounts. When I say bots, that's what I mean, that they immediately uh, moved those accounts into a kind of purgatory status where the owner of the account had to verify that they were, in fact, a real person. Um, and if, if they could verify that, usually it's typically with just a phone number then they would be reinstated. Well, when they when those accounts were put into that purgatory state, they dropped off the follower count uh, and they, they kind of went they went quiet. And so what happened was it turns out that, uh, you know, on the on the political right side of Twitter and social media, a fair number of our conservative influencers are also followed by these large QAnon networks. And so when they got taken down, uh, you saw a corresponding uh, decrease in the number of followers because the, the, those networks, those spammer networks, those bot networks uh, were being taken down. And the people who are making that decision are um, the, uh, the, the social media companies themselves. Okay. Okay. So at the end of the day, that in some ways is it's not a, a bad thing to have these sort of bot platforms being pulled down. I mean, look, the, the influencers will make an argument that it was bad for them because it cuts down on the kind of propagation of their material. So there are plenty of people who are saying, look, I'm being suppressed here. You're preventing the spread of, of my, meaning the conservative, conservative commentators message by taking down, you know, my followers by, you know, thousands at a time. Uh, and, you know, technically speaking, that's not, that's not wrong. Uh, that, that is one of the consequences, but uh, we've often, uh, encourage both both sides of the political law have been encouraging these social media companies to take down these types of networks. And particularly in the context where these networks are being leveraged to plan anti-government violence, it seems like a, a rational or at least defensible choice. Yeah, of course. Let's talk for a minute about Facebook. So Facebook, they really didn't hesitate right away after the events at the Capitol on Wednesday, following, of course, first President Trump's rally and then the full lockdown of the Capitol. Facebook announced that they were banning president through at least the end of his term. What do you think about Facebook's decision? I think any content moderation decision, including who gets to stay on a platform and who doesn't, is almost always going to be debatable. There's no ironclad logic that will satisfy everybody. I, of course, think that, that Facebook is a private company and has a choice in 
whom it will allow to use its platform in the same way that the Heritage Foundation has a choice in who it will allow to use its website to you know, post articles. I think it hurts the conservative cause. Um, even if you believe that um, you know, big tech is weighted with bated breath to constrain conservative speech, if you, if you believe that, if you have drawn that conclusion, well, then one of the best things that conservatives can do to combat that is not give them golden justifications for taking that kind of action. And the reality is, is that over the, 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 the last several weeks and, and even longer, um, you know, a number of golden opportunities have been presented. And so it makes it really difficult to discern, you know, the motives behind any one thing. But, you know, this is this is the sticky situation. It goes back to my point at the beginning. The fact that the public does not trust these companies is decisively um, bad for the country in these types of moments. Well, and I think one of the reasons why so much of the public doesn't really trust these companies is because we're often seeing it feels like these standards applied uh, unequally, that you'll have you know groups on the right more frequently targeted than those on the left. Is, is that a fair assessment? I mean, have we seen Twitter and Facebook apply any of these standards to leaders on the left on their platforms? Have any prominent liberal lawmakers been been fact-checked or banned? Uh, so number one, what you're describing is exactly the the issue. Uh, and look, in one sense, these companies are absolutely hypocrites, and we've certainly said that to them to their face. I mean, at the point where you have the Ayatollah of Iran able to, you know, call this the state of Israel a cancer uh, on Twitter, and that gets left up, but then you know other actions are taken. I mean, like I think they're completely open to legitimate claims of hypocrisy. Uh, and and I have a, I have been at the forefront of, of engaging them on those issues as heritage has been more broadly, and I think that's legitimate. Uh, at the same time, it is also true that actions are taken against uh, democratic and, and left leaning um, users online, and that that's not always known. So a, a recent example is that there were a host of liberal and left leaning groups that were labeled or checked or even kind of brought down. Uh, on the night of the Georgia Senate election because they prematurely declared victory. Now, that happened, and it happened you know, at a, at, a, at a fairly significant scale. But frankly, the left just isn't as organized <laughs> as the right is when it, when it comes to this. They're, they're so fractionalized along different identities that they often aren't able to kind of, kind of make the noise that, uh, that our side is able to do when, when action is taken against them online. So then what actions should be taken in order to kind of make sure that these standards are applied equally and evenly? Are there certain laws that need to be passed? What needs to happen in order for us to be able to move forward in a way that the American people can begin to see that these companies uh, are, are taking some responsibility for their actions and are actually applying their standards evenly? That's the big question. Um one, there is no silver bullet. Two, there are some very practical things that can be done. So in terms of beginning to uh, directly address the lack of confidence uh, in these companies, I think there has to be some demonstrated accountability. I think these companies have to demonstrate some accountability. And I think one of the best ways to begin that, this was this is not going to be uh, decisive, it's not sufficient, but it is required. And that is 
reform of, of what's called Section 230. This is the um, what's called intermediary liability protections that these companies enjoy. We've written a paper about it. I've got it uh, on our website. I'm sure you can link to it. Um, but it's Section 230, Mend It, Don't End It, in which we lay out um, a number of very specific changes to that law that we think would bring it into compliance with, with its original intent and that would begin to provide the type of accountability that we're talking about here. How do you think the rest of the world is kind of viewing this situation? Because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we've seen other very dictatorial, radical, violent leaders in countries like Iran and China who are allowed to remain on platforms like Twitter. uh, And yet President Trump has been pulled off. So what are we kind of hearing from the international community about how this is being viewed? Well, China specifically is... uh watching this and they are then explaining to people how this is yet another piece of evidence that our system of government is unsustainable and that the alternative that they're offering uh, is a better way. And what they say is like, look, we can promise, the Chinese government says they can promise um, the wealth of capitalism coupled with the stability of authoritarianism. And they they identify technology as being the kind of key mechanism for realizing both of those those two promises. And so they look at um, our democracy and without a doubt, uh, our 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 shared experiment in ordered liberty right now feels very disordered. It feels very messy. Um, and, and in one sense, like it is at another in another sense, I would encourage conservatives to also understand that our nation has faced challenges like this before, that we have some underlying institutional stability that allows us to see our way through it. We certainly need to exercise prudence and caution um, and charity, frankly, toward one another. Um, but we can get through this. I don't I don't buy into apocalyptic notions about where the nation is right now. Um, but that would certainly be something that the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and the North Koreans and all kinds of other, you know, foreign bad guys out there would have us believe. And uh, I think that is neither safe nor justified. Well, and it certainly flies in the face of who we are as Americans that, you know, one of our <laughs> foundations is that of free speech. And even with private companies where the First Amendment um, doesn't you know, directly apply to them, there's there's no doubt of our you know that free speech is something that is uh, really sacred kind of in for Americans in that social media space and is still thought that it should be guarded and protected so how do we go about promoting that free speech online look our system of government is not made for efficiency <laughs> right <laughs> our system of government is made for stability and there are some internal tensions that are kind of baked into the cake And one of those tensions is when we talk about valuing freedom of speech, that's absolutely the case. Um, But we mean that not just for individuals, but also entities like these companies. The the decisions that they're making about who will and will not be on their platform, those are free speech issues on their part. Again, as as in the same way that, that we would never want the government to come in and tell Heritage that we have to post certain materials on our website. Uh, that that you know that heritage doesn't want to post you know for whatever reason, um, but the reality is is that Section two thirty governs that activity heritage's online presence as much as it does Facebook's online presence, and so the rules that we make for the one are going to apply to the other, 
And so there's just this inherent tension that we're going to have to navigate. Now, there's room for improvement, and that's why we wrote the paper on Section 230 and, the, and we made the recommendations that we had. But it should also, you know, everyone should understand that, that fixing Section 230, one, is going to be requiring a scalpel, not a broadsword, and two, that that is in no way, shape, or form a silver bullet because we have these baked-in tensions within our society that are going to persist long after Section 230 is dealt with. Well, and one of those sort of free market solutions that we've seen in recent years arise are other social media platforms. And there's one in particular uh, that I'd love to chat about for a few minutes called Parler, and that's known to be very friendly to conservatives. It doesn't censor posts. And many on the right, they've been using Parler to share their ideas. And after the events of Wednesday and President Trump's removal from Twitter, we saw a real flood of conservatives moving over to Parler. But Apple, Google, and Amazon have removed or, or taken away services uh, from the Parler app. Um, so let's start with just talking about Apple and Google. Can you just explain what exactly is going on there with more or less kind of their censorship almost of Parler? Well, okay. So this goes back to the investigation that came on Twitter in terms of the the anti-government violence planning. And... Um, as, as all of that was being mapped out, it was discovered that a, that a huge center of gravity for that activity was actually occurring on Parler. And so as the various platforms became aware of that, of that reality, um, they began to um, take action. So when Twitter learned that people were using Twitter that way, Twitter had moderation uh, rules that allowed them to kind of take action and remove those accounts. Parler is deliberately kind of making its brand that we're the no moderation um, social media company. Well, what that means is, is that they actually don't have uh, and weren't moderating any of that violent content or that content justifying violence on their on their platform. And they also did not have any type of a mechanism for users to report that kind of content. Well, not moderating violent content and not having a mechanism to report violent content actually violates the rules that Apple and Google have set for um, being hosted on their app stores. And the reason that they have those rules is because if someone were to use uh, Parler's app to successfully plan and conduct a violent act, well, if Apple and Google were aware of that activity but allowed it to persist, then they could be held liable. So okay. that is one of the reasons why Apple and Google said, uh, Google just kicked them off completely as soon as they discovered it. Apple gave them 24 hours to, to adopt uh, new moderation uh, controls and Parler failed to, to do that. And so both of them out of, I mean, frankly, a, a self-preservationist um, motivation said, well, okay, well, we're not going to assume the liability of this. If you're not going to take action, we're not going to host you. It was similar when Amazon made its decision. Amazon has similar rules. Amazon provides the cloud infrastructure that supports Parler. And um, for the same for the same rationale of not wanting to be held liable for the violent content on Parler, said, "Listen, you either take care of this, or we're going to no longer host your services." Parler failed to take care of this. Amazon dropped them, and now subsequent cloud service providers, for the exact same reasons, are not willing to take them up. So the bottom line here is that it's not as though other social media companies didn't have the idea that Parler was offering of trying to be kind of a free speech zone, meaning like a, a zero moderation zone on social media. It's just that by becoming that, by choosing that business model, two things happen. One, 
you tend to be a pretty gross place. There's lots of stuff that shows up. Uh, some of the worst stuff on the internet ends up being on your platform because you're not moderating and not a lot of people want to go there. And then two, uh, you expose yourself to these types of existential liabilities. And, you know, this was always going to be something that parlor faced. Uh, and at the point where it, that, that inherent challenge intersected with the ongoing anti-government violent planning, uh, that just became the straw that broke the camel's back for these other companies. So then taking all that into consideration, as a tech policy expert, what is your assessment of Apple, Google, and Amazon's actions here? Well, so looking at just the facts and not trying to discern intentions, um, the the fact base that's laid out there in terms of their concerns about liability, I mean, that's legitimate. It's discernible. It's clear. That's true. I mean, just imagine for a second if we found out that there was a there was an app on the Google and Apple App Store that um, let's say it was a, a a Saudi Arabian messaging app, and we found out that Al Qaeda used that app to successfully plan an attack against the United States, and that Apple and Google knew that that activity was going on on that app and didn't take action against it. What do you think would happen to those companies? Yeah, it wouldn't end well. <laughs> no, right? I mean, beyond, I mean, certainly they would be dragged before Congress rightly and grilled and asked, why did you allow this activity to happen? But then there would be very real legal liabilities um, that they would be exposed to, and rightly so. Well, uh, you know, this is exactly that kind of scenario, right? Yeah. And so it's, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm letting them off the hook for their um, their hypocrisy or for the uh, thousands of other dumb things that they have done or ways that they have treated the conservatives. I'm not denying any of that. But in this specific case over the last you know six days, the things that are being asserted and the fact pattern that is being laid out would seemingly justify at least some of these actions. Yeah, Klan, this is uh, obviously such a complex issue. There's so many layers here and various facets to the situation. But, you know, for individuals who are just kind of looking at this situation, and I think um, specifically for conservatives who are feeling really overwhelmed and just kind of watching so quickly how it feels like all of these social media companies have very, very quickly, uh, it sort of feels like are intentionally pushing those on the right out, pushing them off. And I think people are kind of wondering, like, where where does this stop? I mean, you know, are, are all of conservatives, you know, going to essentially be thrown off of these social media platforms? I mean, how, how concerned should we kind of be about where this leads and where it's going to end? Well, I think real concerns are justified in terms of even if what's going on right now is completely legitimate, it is a valid concern to be worried that these concerns could be expanded to include much broader types of conservative content that we would have a real problem with, right? So I, I am very sympathetic to that concern. And it's something that we uh, at the Heritage Foundation are obviously mindful of and pushing back on. And, you know, we're wading into this conversation, trying to be kind of the adult in the room by recognizing the realities that we've been talking about up until this point and recognizing, you know, the the very real negative kind of overreach that could follow all of this. But while we engage in that, I'm often telling myself two things. One, well, don't give them any excuse, right? So really be smart about how I'm operating. But then two, understand that 
that there's some inherent risk to the way we've organized our society where, you know, these companies and individuals have rights, have freedoms, and sometimes those rights and freedoms are bumping into one another. Now, that doesn't mean that the status quo is the best possible way. In fact, I'm, I feel like the status quo is probably unsustainable. And so we need to be thinking very carefully about how we allow these companies to play a role in our society, to what degree, if any, we need to impose some type of a constraint on them. But we also need to understand the full consequences of any constraints that might be placed on them. And that, again, our underlying conservative political philosophy understands that there is no perfect solution. It is always about trade-offs. Um, but I think it's time to start thinking more carefully about uh, what trade-offs may be warranted in this modern context. Clown, we really appreciate your expertise on this issue. How can our listeners follow your work and keep up with um, with all the research and the work that you're doing on this issue? Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, I, I try to be available on podcasts like this. Uh, they can go to the, the Heritage website and do a simple name for my search. It's Klon, K-L-O-N, Kitchen, just like the room. You'll see, I think, most of everything I produce, whether it's published somewhere else or not there. Um, I have a newsletter, a weekly newsletter called The Kitchen Sink, S-Y-N-C, where I just kind of comment and uh, and give updates on the latest tech policy and news that can be found uh, the, the, you can sign up for that, I think on the, uh, on the heritage website as well. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a, it's a good way. You can also follow me on Twitter. If that's your thing, I'm at Klon kitchen and, uh, yeah, I'm happy to engage as I can. Great. Klon, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the daily signal podcast. You can find the daily signal podcast on Google play, Apple podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star reading on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.